Hi everyone, my name is Gates. And I'm Kelsey. And welcome to Keller Country. Because we totally forgot that last time. (laughs) And I may or may not have just clipped it out of the week before. But it sounded perfectly fine. Like, I could not tell that we forgot to record it. (laughs) And, like, I told Nick, I was like, you need to remind me. Because, like, my pregnancy brain has just gotten so bad. I literally have a notepad on my countertop now. So anytime that I have a thought of things that I need to do, I'll, like, get to Um, it. Yeah, so... We were told yesterday that Slipknot, um, uh, in this moment, and Ginger are coming to Birmingham 20 days before our due date. <laughs> and so I asked my Facebook friends, I was like, hey, guys, do you uh, do you think that would be too far of a drive to do, you know, nine months pregnant? And everyone was like, yeah, you, you shouldn't do that. But probably not. When I called Nick, I was like, Nick, like, because I thought that they were going to be in Huntsville. I didn't know mm-hmm. where the JCC is or BBJC, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And I told Nick, I was like, dude, they're coming. Like, Slipknot. He's like, I know you love Corey Taylor. <laughs> but I think but. you would like to see Stone Sour more than you would like to see Slipknot. I don't know any of these people you're talking about, but. <laughs> okay, well, um. <laughs> Corey Taylor is my hall pass. <laughs> so, and Jason Momoa now that he's single. Oh my gosh, but, I know. What the heck? They were uh, so in love. I know. He was so in love with her. Like, I, I it's heartbreaking. Okay. Here, here he is. Oh. So, yeah. <laughs> but um, he has how many different bands he's in? Two? Three? Currently, there are two, Stone Sour and Slipknot. I listen to a lot more Stone Sour than I do Slipknot. Mm-hmm. But I, I was really excited. And then my sister said the most hateful thing that she has ever said in her entire life. Basically, the conversation, and this is for anyone who is keeping track of my siblings. This is Brittany. She works at um, Simmons if, Bank. If you are keeping track of Gates' siblings, you probably need one of those boards with the red line. the lines, yes. <laughs> yeah. oh just a little bit of information anyone who wants to update their board Avery is now engaged to a wonderful lovely human her name is Kendall so congratulations guys they got engaged at the Grand Canyon oh my gosh yes but okay so Brittany works at this really nice bank in Arkansas and she has the balls to tell me yeah, um, if you weren't so pregnant, I could probably get you guys box seats. Because <laughs> they're going to be in um, uh, Little Rock. Hmm. I was like, you're so hateful. I, I wanted to cry <laughs> Why after would you that. Tell me that. Why would you tell me that? But yeah. Aw. So what's going on in the true crime world? I tried to look up a few things because I haven't really been on Facebook or the news recently. Yeah, I haven't seen too much going on in the, like big true crime world um for our listeners in huntsville and gates and i we mm-hmm. had another police um shooting um not the police being shot the police murdering people in huntsville so a pregnant was it a girlfriend or wife well it's so it's a very 
the more the more you read about it, the more information that kind of comes out about it. So the woman who was killed was pregnant and was the girlfriend of the police officer. Mm-hmm. Okay. He is also married. <laughs> yes. What? Yes, married or fiance. There was there was mixed mixed reviews on that. But he had another another spouse. Oh yes. my gosh. And supposedly this is of course from all different sources that they he hasn't gone to trial so there's not a, a definitive reason why or anything like that but he supposedly called the girlfriend, pregnant girlfriend and said she cuz she didn't live in Huntsville and said that he was going to kill himself and he was just like so distraught so that's why she came back to Huntsville. They had a domestic dispute. He shot her while he was off duty at their apartment. Hmm. So, Iowa, where are you taking us in Iowa? Let's see, where am I taking you? I am taking you all the way, sorry, I had to scroll up nine pages, (laughs) to Gitche Manitou. Whoa, with a G? G. Okay, you're before me, I'm in Martinsburg. Mm, 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 (laughs) Finally, back on top, man. Okay. Sorry, sometimes I get out of breath whenever I get excited about things because he is just right there. Okay, so I'm kind of cheating on this one. Okay. But Gitche Manitou is a nature preserve. Okay. Where the murders, or it's not a nature preserve. It's just a park preserve mm-hmm. in Iowa. So Gitche Manitou has many alternative sayings and pronunciations the name is associated with many different Native American tribes in the area. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I'm still feeling a little nauseous. I might <laughs> not get sick, but just but I might pause a bit more in this <laughs> than I have been. So the name means great spirit or sky chief or master of life. It can mean any of those. And many people consider Gitche Manitou and the Christian God to be one and the same. Hmm. It's a small... 91-acre nature preserve in Lyon County, and it's noted for its ancient Native American burial mounds and outcroppings, which are about 1.6 billion, with a B, years old. Wow. The the first permanent settlement in Lyon County was in... Can you hear him in the background? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Nick Nick is going to be home basically any minute now. Okay. I am so sorry, guys. All right. We, we don't mind. We'll take a yeah. little Rexy in there. Oh, he's just, he hasn't gotten as much love today as he thinks that he deserves because I have not <laughs> been feeling well. So he's just been a little indignant. <laughs> now, the first permanent settlement in Lyon County was in July of 1866. And the first, it, I, I say the first permanent settlement, I'm talking about like the first white people settlement. Okay. And the first non-Indigenous child was born in the county five years later on May 28th, 1871. Oh, wow. Because it's a nature preserve, there's no population. But in Lyon County, uh, their population is currently, in this year, 11,934 people. And in the 1970s, when this case happened, the population was 13,349. So it's slowly getting smaller. I feel like that's very common with the Midwest. (laughs) 
Very Especially the rural Midwest. <laughs> yes, no one wants to live in the rural Midwest anymore. Not that I blame them. I, I miss home. I grew up in the rural mis- Midwest, so I get it. Yeah. <laughs> I miss home, but I don't, if that makes sense. Yep. I like being able to drive five minutes to go to a Walmart and see no one that I know. Yeah. I have learned in recent years that I'm appreciative of where I grew up, but I have no desire to, mm-hmm. to go back, you know, exactly. like I love the people there. I love, I, I still have friends there. I will gladly come and visit, but just, I just feel my place is elsewhere. Yes. <laughs> So I probably feel the same. So (laughs) they're like, keep her away. (laughs) Oh gosh. I doubt that. Okay. So I'm taking you guys all the way back to Sunday, November 18th, 1973. And I'm going to take you guys through the perspective of the police that are, that were called to the scene. Um, There I've seen this case told multiple different times. I think I was on like six or seven different sources this time Mm -hmm. and each of them kind of told it a little bit differently, but I think it flows a little bit easier like this. Okay. So on Sunday, November 18th, 1973, a Sioux fall couple were out test driving a car and they get you Manitou nature preserve that they were contemplating on buying when through the tall grass, they noticed the bodies of three teenagers Immediately seeing that, they called the police, and the police arrived. When they arrived, they began investigating the area, and the next day during their investigation, they noticed a fourth body. Because this is a mass murder, it was exceptionally unusual for this area, so it became a joint effort between police from two different states. Now, Gitche Manitou is located on the uppermost West County in Iowa, And it is on the state line of South Dakota and Iowa. So that's why South Dakota is involved in this case. Mm -hmm. Members of the South Dakota Police Department worked alongside special agents from the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation. It's also known as as their state's detective bureau. The investigators got together and diligently went over any piece of information that they could get from the crime scene. And uh, the four teens that they did find had gaping bullet holes or bullet wounds, letting the investigators know that the victims had been shot by shotguns at close range. The police managed to find shell casings in the area from three different shotguns, and it would be determined to be a 12, 16, and 20 gauge shotgun shell. This lets us know that it's most likely three different killers because what killer is gonna walk around with three different types of shotguns? Right. Let's be honest. The next day, shortly after the murders made the news, a 13, a 13-year-old girl named Sandra Chesky came forward with information from that night. Sandra said that on the night of November 17th, she and her boyfriend, Roger Essam, who was 17, along with three of his buddies, Mike, Michael Hadreth, who was 15, and brothers Stuart Bidet, 18, and Dana Bidet, who was 14. They went to the state preserve to build a campfire, to hang out, and just to smoke some marijuana. Mm-hmm. The area is well-known. It's a well-known place to hike and hang out for, and I quote, beer parties. <laughs> I've never heard of beer parties before. So I was talking to my best friend, Heather, back home, and, um, like, I was FaceTiming her, telling her about this. And I was like, yeah, it was a beer party. We made fun of it. And her mom, I call her Mama Christy. Mama Christie was like, 
yeah, beer parties, you know, it's an actual thing, right? <laughs> we were like, uh, no. And she was like, yeah, that's just where you get a keg, you go hang out and you party. Yep. I was like, I, di- I didn't realize that that was. Like, we did a lot of, of it? we did a lot of beer parties like <sighs> in people's shops um, because it's so, especially in the wintertime because it's so cold. So uh-huh. we would literally just go and bring our beer and sit around in a dirty shop and that's it. That was literally a party in Westbrook, Minnesota. Okay. So it's not that it's a different generation. It's just that I'm lame <laughs> is what you're telling me, basically. Well, I you. mean, maybe you just were <laughs> rural enough. <laughs> maybe. It could be that I wasn't because I did, like, technically spend my teenage years in Missouri. Or yeah. Springfield, Missouri. And, so. like, we had nothing. I mean... We, we, we barely had a gas station that ran, so. <laughs> yeah, we uh, we broke into a church one time. It was an abandoned church. That's, that's as cool as I am. That's sketchy. Them. I don't know that I would be doing that. Yeah, it was it was really sketch. We uh, ran out because we heard something moving around. So hmm, Good. Yeah, it was not a fun time. Anyways, back to the story. All four boys were the best of friends, and they welcomed Sandra into their group just because she was dating one of theirs, just like any friend group would do. When they got back to the park, the teens, or when they got to the park, the teens parked the van in the tall grass next to a large stone shelter in the area, and they walked down a narrow path. Not too far into the path, they ended up seeing this beautiful opening among the trees where they just set up their campfire. There was about a six to seven foot natural quartzite wall on their south side, and that comes into play later. After they got the fire started, Stuart broke out his guitar and everyone started smoking and singing. And I don't know if you've ever been around a camp. You probably have, Mm -hmm. but (laughs) to our listeners, I don't know if you've ever been around a campfire when someone breaks out a guitar and starts picking at it, but there are few things more relaxing. Oh, it's wonderful. It's so amazing. I love camping with my younger sister, Avery, just because she always brings her guitar We'll make some coffee to sip and just enjoy nature. And she'll, she doesn't like strum at her guitar. She just like picks at it. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so beautiful. Like it's so <laughs> relaxing. And I'm guessing with the marijuana, it was just that much better. Mm-hmm. Sandra said about 20 minutes after arriving, Sandra said about 20 minutes after arriving, they heard twigs snapping and someone moving around in the brush above them. So this would have been above like, during that or at that six to seven kind of outcropping um, above the quartzite. Her boyfriend went to go investigate. Immediately he was shot and fell to the ground. After that, more shots rang out and Stuart and either Michael or Dana reports differ on who it was, who was wounded at this point, mm-hmm. but uh, they were shot. They weren't killed, but they were shot at this point. We do know for a fact that Stuart was one of the people that was hit because Sandra said that she could hear him screaming, I've been shot, it hurts, it hurts. Oh. So, yeah, we know that it was Stuart, um, but it was either Michael or Dana that was also with him. Three men came down from the top of the court site and identified themselves as narcotic agents, and they said that they were there to bust them for marijuana, for smoking. 
one man who will later be identified as David Fryer, who was 24 at the time. He assured everyone that Roger would be okay and that he had just been shot with a tranquilizer gun. I mean, these are kids. So, of course, yeah, if someone like, says that they're police, they're going to be right. like, okay, yeah, I'm going to believe you. You're a police officer. My friend is just trained. Like, he's not dead or anything. Mm-hmm. And Sandra said, like, they all believed him. One of the men identified himself as the boss. And he would later be identified as Alan Fryer, who was the oldest at 29. He ordered Sandra to get in the blue van that her friend had driven up in. And this is the last time that she had seen her friends alive. During the drive, Alan told Sandra that he was a police officer. Once again, he's just reiterating, I'm a police officer, I'm a police officer. And he was called the boss and that the other men would do anything that he instructed them to do. After a short time of driving, the other two men met them on the road with their pickup that they had driven in. Alan and Sandra got out of the van as a group, or I'm sorry, Alan and Sandra got in the pickup as a group. They left the van where it was, and they drove to a farmhouse. One of the men, who would later be identified as James Fryer, 21, sexually assaulted Sandra. At the time, this poor 13-year-old girl like most 13 year old girls was a virgin at the time. Yeah. And she told them that, but they didn't care. They did not spare her at all. And later she, or during this interview with the police, she told them, and I quote, I told him I'm only 13. And that really shocked him. And he would just tell me, I'll do what I can to get you out of this. I'm assuming this quote was from Alan, but It doesn't say exactly who she was talking to. Um, Now, later that day, after the assault, that next morning, the brothers decided that it was time to get rid of Sandra. And the boss, who we later know, once again is Alan, told his brothers that he would take care of it. As in, this man promised his brother, who assaulted this girl, that he would kill this 13-year-old girl for him. Oh, my gosh. Who are these people? (sighs) I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Now, uh, after that, Alan filled the truck tank with gas. Okay, so this is um, a very minute detail, but it's a big detail. So Alan filled the gas, uh, the truck tank with gasoline from a large red fuel tank out in the front of the house near the garage. And after that, they, you know, he drove her away. The brothers think that he's going to be killing her. But instead of killing her like his brothers intended him to do, he just took her home. To her house or to his? To her house. What the heck? Yeah. I mean, it's good. (laughs) It's good because we have a survivor and we know what happened. Without her, they wouldn't have been found. Like, they wouldn't have gotten these guys behind bars. Mm -hmm. So uh, he once again told her, you know, I'm a police officer. And uh, he said, you know, you're just, you're too young to get busted. So when he took her home, he told her, you know, I will kill you if you tell anyone what happened. And she said that that next morning, whenever she found out what happened to her friends, she overcame her fear of the boss and went to authorities who would let her know that Alan is not the boss. He's not a narcotics agent. 
A later, reti later, a retired agent with the Iowa Bureau of Criminal Investigations is quoted by saying, Alan wasn't the brightest bulb. After the boys were gunned down, it was just him and her in the truck, and I think he became aware of her as a person rather than just somebody standing out in the woods. She remained calm, and they talked, and he just couldn't bring himself to kill her. Her descriptions and her descriptions of the men enabled investigators to create sketches of all the suspects. Unfortunately, though, the sketches did not turn up any productive leads. Hmm. They searched for Stewart's blue van, and it was nowhere. They could not find it at all. The van ultimately ended up being a dead end for any leads that they hoped to get. And later in a um, an interview. The two brothers, they had an older brother named Leland, and he was not there that night. But he said that the group, he said that the group was all kids, and all of them pretty much kept, kept to themselves the mind of their own business. In an interview with Sandra, she recalled uh, talking about the police officers. They weren't mean to me. They just thought I knew the names of the people that did it, and they wanted them. They didn't want to do all this driving around because in their mind, they thought, why would they let her go? Why did only one of the three rape her? To them, it seemed unbelievable. And I mean, it kind of does. Mm -hmm. You have this 13-year-old girl coming out of nowhere telling you guys, hey, those are my friends. This is what happened. And it's this unbelievable story about how she got away. Right. So, I mean, it does, in a way, sound a little suspicious. Mm -hmm. Investigators spent days with Sandra driving around gravel roads near Sioux Falls where she was assaulted. And as, like, a stroke of absolute luck, 10 days into their ride-alongs, uh, they came across the house that had that big red gasoline tank in the front. Mm, that she recognized. That, yes, so uh, they decided, you know, as soon as they saw the house, it had that gas tank out in front of it that they were going to stake out the house. And Sandra was sitting in there with the police officers because they wanted her to be able to identify the guys if they came by at all. And as they were sitting in the car with the officer, the boss drove by slowly in the same truck that Sandra was abducted in. Immediately, she told the guy that she was riding with, who is Sheriff Craig Vincent, that's him. That's the boss. And they quickly pulled the pickup over and arrested Alan. His brothers were shortly arrested. After, shortly after they were all arrested, the brothers turned on each other and accused the other brother of pulling the trigger. So James would say, oh, it wasn't me. It was David. Oh, it wasn't me. It was Alan. Just back and forth and back and forth. And James was actually serving jail time at the time of the murders. And he tried to claim that he wasn't there because he was in jail at the time. But his plea was unsuccessful because they were able to prove that on the day. So James tried to claim that he wasn't there because he was in jail. But his plea was unsuccessful because they were able to prove that on the day of the murders, he was actually out of lockup thanks to a work release program that he was in. And of course, Sandra would later identify all of the men in the lineup. And when she found out that all the men were brothers, she told producers of Oxygen that it was just mind-blowing. I mean, I, I can't, I mean, I would do a lot of things for my siblings, but I wouldn't mindlessly murder five people for them no. or three people, four people for them. 
No, me neither. And Phil Hammond, who is a co-author author of two crime books, is quoted saying about the brothers, they were criminals when they were in each other's presence. For the Fryer brothers, it, for the Fryer brothers' lives, it was all about what was going to be the next crime, what they could steal next, and what they could go out and shoot next. That's all they cared about. But just just when they were together, so when they were apart, they were seemingly decent guys? Yeah, it was a pack mindset is That's what crazy. a lot of these articles were saying. Well, and it's so funny, like, you can, I don't know if you've ever had that, but I always noticed it with my dad. Not that he, my dad's not <laughs> crazy like that, <laughs> but, like, it always made me chuckle because depending on who he was talking to on the phone or who we were with, like, if we were at one friend's house, he talked like his voice changed almost mm -hmm. like, and the way, and I'm sure I do it too without even realizing. Um, but I, I don't know, I guess it, whenever I think of that, I think of my dad because it was so distinct. Like he mm -hmm. would go from my normal dad and then we were in the presence of one of his friends and he's a completely different person. <laughs> like, well, I have a different tone of voice on the podcast than I do with my husband and I have a different tone of voice from my husband that I have with my friends. Mm -hmm. So it's like. I'm sure I'm the same and I just yeah. don't realize it about myself. Yeah. But it's just the the guys, they just like fed off of each other's energies. So it was like, who could do the most like messed up thing? And can we like escalate Competition this? all the time. Basically, yes. That is how it was described. Before the trial, James and Ellen actually ended up escaping from the Lyon County Jail where they were being held at the time. They stole a vehicle once they were out, and they fled the state, and a week later, they were found two states away in Wyoming. Now, whenever I say two states away, I'm talking about, like, it was Iowa, South Dakota, Wyoming. So, it could be considered one state away. I just didn't want to get called out and be like, there's one state well, in between them. But, I mean, this is yeah. like... But you the border he was on of South Dakota, it, that you have to go through the whole state. Yeah, you have to go That's through the whole one, state. And then Wyoming is too. Yes, who knows where they were at in Wyoming. I yeah. don't have that information. And Wyoming is ginormous, so that counts as two states. <laughs> yes. And, I mean, what even is in Wyoming? Um, it's very pretty. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> but not much. <laughs> There's beauty there. That's all that matters. <laughs> yeah. Now, in court, we would hear the stories from the brother's point of view, and this is how it happened. And one person is quoted saying something about how they started off with pheasant hunting. But the one that I had seen the most was that the Friar brothers were in the park to poach deer that night, and they were drawn to the areas that the teens were in because they heard guitar and singing. I heard, like, in that other source that they were pheasant hunting and they couldn't find any pheasants. So they were like, oh, let's hunt for deer. And they couldn't find any deer. So they were like, what else could we hunt? And they just walked around until they heard something. And they said, okay, that's what we're doing. <laughs> now, David Not Fryer. Not minding that it's literal humans. Yeah. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter that they're literal, literal humans. Literal children. Like 13. It was like 13, 14, 15, 17, and 18. That was their ages. The uh, David Fryer was sent by his two other brothers to spy on the group. And whenever he went back to his brothers with his report about what he had seen, what he had heard, 
he told them that it was just a bunch of teens smoking marijuana. And the brothers decided, I mean, the night was shot. They might as well just take the teens marijuana. So. What? Yeah. But so in order to get the teens marijuana, they said that they were, they decided that they were going to impersonate narcotics officers. And let me tell you, um, I've tried, I guess I should have looked at a dictionary before we started recording to figure out a better word for like stupid, moronic, (laughs) just idiots. These men. Um, So they said that they were going to be, they wanted to impersonate narcotics officers. The brothers incorrectly, incorrectly assumed that narcotics officers are allowed to indiscriminately kill any drug users that they come across. So narcotics officers are police officers who work in a special unit. Mm -hmm. Um, No form of authority (laughs) is allowed to just shoot the person. Yes. I mean, even, even if you are in a situation when you have to shoot the person because your own life is at risk, Mm -hmm. you are put under extreme scrutiny to make sure that it was justified. Yes. So, I don't think, I think that was just something that they threw in there to just say, because that's bullshit if I've ever heard it. Yeah. (laughs) But I mean, like uh, one officer was quoted saying, they're not the smite, they're not the smitest. They're not the brightest uh, bulb. They're not the brightest light bulb. They're not the brightest bulb in the batch. I don't remember what the saying was anymore. They're not the brightest crayon in the crayon box. Okay. (laughs) There's not a lot going on up there. Yes, not the sharpest tool in the shed. So once they all had their shotguns, they went to the ridge overlooking where the teens were at. And this is at the point where Roger had heard them and he went to go see what was going on. Immediately, he was shot and killed. They knew that they killed him. He was not getting up. Two more were wounded when the brothers started opening fire. Let's see, two more were wounded whenever the brothers opened fire. Of course, they didn't know who it was. And then for sure, we know that Sandra and either uh, Dana or Michael, again, reports differ, ran into the trees to hide. The Fryer brothers came down from the uh, court site. And as they were doing that, they were yelling at the teens, ordering them to come out from the trees. And whenever they did, Michael shouted at one of the brothers and asked them, who the hell do you think you are? And instead of replying, Alan just shot Michael in the arm. And yeah. Because, you know, as a narcotics officer, you can just That's shoot. That's just what you do. You just Whatever. shoot him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally, totally. So uh, he shot him in the arm, and both Michael and Sandra at this point fall to the ground. Uh, Alan ended up yelling at them to get up because he te- he could tell that they were playing dead. He's like, you know, I shot you in the arm. I only shot one person. There's no reason that two people should go down, blah, blah, blah. So uh, he yelled at them because he could tell that they were quote, playing dead. Alan and his brother David moved Dana, Michael, Stewart, and Sandra all the way along the trail where they had their campfire set away from where they had their campfire set up. And at this point, Sandra is taken away from the group. She was tied up and she was placed in Stewart's van. And this is when Sandra and Alan drive away, leaving the other three victims alive. This is what we heard earlier. But what we don't hear is once they've left, James and David, the two remaining brothers at the scene, lined up everyone and shot Dana, Michael, and Stuart all at point blank range with their shotguns. Yeah. 
these literal children. Like, the youngest that was shot was 14. For weed. Like, these are, they're grown men. Like, they could have easily just come in and been like, hey, kids, what are you doing? And taken the weed and left. Like, But this is also the 70s. I mean, couldn't you think, like, you go up and you'd be like, hey, kids, like, you know, you have some weed, you want to share And if they're, I mean, if they were wanting to be selfish and not share, it's a lot more fun if you share, but if they were wanting it for themselves, like I said, they could have easily just played the grown-up card and because they're kids. I mean, even at 18, you're going to be like, ah, shit, like it's illegal still in the seventies. It's illegal. So, I mean, (laughs) they could have easily just, Hey, what are you doing? You shouldn't be out here. Give that to us. Go home. Mm-hmm. End of story. Yeah, or they could have intimidated them with their shotguns. There was no need to shoot no. anyone. Especially because, I mean, these are literal kids. The yeah. oldest of the bad guys is 29. Yeah. The oldest of the victims was 18. There is a large difference between me, even as like a 26-year-old, than there was as me as a 16-year-old. Oh, Absolutely. I'm a completely different person, even in the past five years. Yeah, exactly. And like, I I haven't grown. I haven't like grown since the fifth grade. <laughs> but still, like, yeah. I'm more mature. I'm not scarier looking, but I'm more mature than I looking than I was whenever I was 16. So these kids would be like, oh, gosh, maybe we shouldn't be doing this. We don't have guns. There was no need to shoot anyone. So uh, we do find out, though, that all of one or more of these guns, we don't have an exact number, but the guns that were used by the men were all stolen at some point by David Fryer. So these guns weren't even theirs. Now, during the trial, Sandra was the star witness in every single one of those boys' trials. All of these men, I, I shouldn't call them boys, 29 they're 29 (laughs) um all of these men's trials all of these men would be sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole and later interviews sandra had told reporters you know for years i had nightmares and my mom would crawl into bed with me when i was 15 years old still like can you imagine being assaulted at 15 having your boyfriend and your friends murdered I mean, not necessarily in front of you. Her boyfriend was murdered in front of her. But she well, didn't know because they told her that yeah. it was a tranquilizer. But still. Still. Yeah. And because, once again, this was the 70s, mental health wasn't as big as a, wasn't as big of a thing as it is now. Mm-hmm. Sandra ended up dropping out of school a few months after the murders, after everything happened, because she was shunned by all of her classmates. Because their parents told them to shun her. Why? Because people gossiped and spread horrible rumors all over town about Sandra and said that the only reason that she survived was because she was in on it. What? Even though there was absolutely no proof. What? Or motive. What motivation did she have? And she was new to the area. She had like just moved there. Like, she just moved to the area. Yeah. So there's literally... No. That's the stupidest thing ever. Yeah. But But small towns. That's how it works. 
I was saying, you know how small towns are. No, one person comes up with something and now the whole town thinks that it's... Ugh. Exactly. Now, Alan is serving his life sentence at a penitentiary in Anamosia, Iowa. And David and James are serving their life sentence together at the Fort Dodge Correctional Facility at Fort Do- in Fort Dodge, Iowa. Now, these POSs decided that they were able, that they should try for appeals. And in February of 1975, David tried to appeal his sentencing with the Supreme Court of Iowa. It was denied. Nothing ever came from that, thankfully. And in January of 1895, (laughs) we're not time traveling here. (laughs) Allen tried to appeal his sentencing with the United States Court of Appeals, and it was denied in October of that same year. Good. So thankfully, even though both of them have tried to appeal, Neither of them have gotten it. And thankfully, the other brother, James, hasn't even thought about it. Or if he has, like, it hasn't even made it to the Court of, Good. Court of Appeals. But, well, they can stay in there. <sighs> yes. They're still life. alive, though. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Because, I mean, this was, I guess technically it was 48 years ago. But. <laughs> it does not feel like that. No. I say that like I was here 48 years ago. I definitely yeah. was not, but I mean, <laughs> you don't think that it's no. almost 50 years ago. You're like, oh, the seventies, that's like 30 years ago. Yeah. No, that's no. crazy. Yeah. Uh, well, I am going to take us to the other side of Iowa. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, Martinsburg, Iowa is located in Keokuk, Keokuk County, okay. um, which is in the lower Southeast part of the state. So. So literally the exact opposite. Yes. (laughs) Um, The current population of Martinsburg is actually less than it was, just as we were talking about small towns deteriorating over time, Mm -hmm. um, than it was at the time of the case I covered, which was in the early 1960s. In 1960, the population was a whopping 172. Oh, man. That's so many people. I know. 172? I know. And in 2020, the population was 110. So slowly, slowly, slowly. <laughs> Maybe we should do YouTube so people can see like yes. what's going on. Um, by today's standards, that would not even be classified as a town. So really? based on population, there are classifications on what defines a city, a town, a village, etc. At 110 people. Martinsburg would be a village and defined as a small community of people in a rural area. Huh. Yeah. So we say the town, the city, um, a lot of rural areas in the Midwest are like this, and they're just kind of a collection of villages. Uh, Where I grew up in Westbrook, um, we had 700 people. So we were a village. Um, We have um, towns down the road. My dad, the town my dad grew up in was smaller than that. And there's a city on Highway 14, goes literally from the southern part of the state all the way to Minneapolis. Um, Well, maybe not all the way to Minneapolis, but (laughs) close enough. And there's a town there, Cobden. It has like 12 people. What? Yeah, in the whole city. Population sign and everything. Wow. Yes. Um. As you can probably guess, with as little as Martinsburg is, there Martinsburg is there isn't a ton of fun facts to share about Martinsburg. It's tiny. <laughs> it's tiny. 
Um, but I'll give you a little bit of history on it. In 1874, Martinsburg was hopping, a hopping mm -hmm. place. Uh, the population had reached over 300 at the time. Ooh. I, I know. There were two general stores, a hotel, a Presbyterian church, just one. There was Not, a hotel, though? I'm still, like, reeling over that. <laughs> so, I don't know if I've told you. So, I, do, do you know what Little House on the Prairie is? Yeah. Okay. I'm from Wal I'm from Westbrook, Walnut Grove. Like, okay. Walnut Grove, where Laura Ingalls and her family lived. Yeah. Um, for a short time before moving to Missouri. Um, but, of course I know. I'm from Missouri. Yes. <laughs> but hotels were different than what we think of as a hotel now. In Walnut, um, there's actually, it's a home now. Somebody lives there. But it's the original building that was called the Master's Hotel. So it's literally a house. But the family that lived there ran it as a hotel. So they would rent out rooms by the night to, to people passing through. Okay. And in rural areas like that, for, especially for people who were not live off the land type people, this was a big thing. This was really popular. Mm -hmm. um, so they had the Presbyterian Church, just one, not five like Westbrook. <laughs> um, they had two physicians and a vineyard. They had oh. everything you need. Yes, especially the vineyard safe, part. Mentally, spiritually, physically, they've got you. Yes. <laughs> um. Little Midwest history lesson. That's kind of what I feel my whole case my whole case is. Because I'm like, this is just where my heart is. This is this is what I grew up in. Yes. <laughs> um, even though the Mississippi River is along the eastern border board border border of Minnesota and Iowa, the states themselves have very little in way of transportation when it comes to waterways. And back in the day, rivers and stuff like that was the primary way of transport for goods um, and anything like that, postage, everything. Um, so for these rural areas, they relied a lot on what they could grow locally mm -hmm. until railroads became a thing. And then once the railroads became a thing, railroad lines popped up in almost every single one of these towns, or I guess I should say villages. And that brought with growth. So Bar Martinsburg was no different mid 1880s and by night um the growth had spiked in the mid 1880s and by 1900 it was at its highest with 332 people had five subdivisions of houses a second church oh another hotel what <laughs> and a post office Man. so martinsburg was on the map yes it was all 300 <laughs> people of it yes um, as of 2020, there are only two businesses open to the public in Martinsburg, and it's a it's called Macbeth Wrecker, which I want you to remember Macbeth Wrecker, an auto service, and a gas station. Um, okay. I do I have to shout out I've shout out shouted out Westbrook a lot already, but I'm going to one more time because we have something <laughs> really cool about Westbrook. Um, so in Westbrook, we literally have nothing. We don't have a stoplight. We have one road. Main Street, uh -huh. and then all these little roads that kind of stem off of it. Yeah. And if you, if there's one curve in Main Street, but if that curve wasn't there, you could drive in one side and see the other. Oh, and yeah. we have our school. We have a public park with a pool and a hospital. The hospital is actually the smallest functioning hospital in the state of Minnesota and has eight patient beds. 
So, yes. That's so tiny. <laughs> so compared to like Huntsville Hospital with hundreds of patient beds, we have eight in Westbrook. Oh, my God. I know. <laughs> um, the hospital was independently run for a long time and eventually was um, bought out or partnered or purchased for, by Sanford Medical Center. And the primary physician there is Dr. Andy Koprud, who owns the vineyard outside of town where I had my wedding. Okay, you completely <laughs> cut out. Oh. <laughs> All I heard was the, and then oh. a few seconds later, wedding. <laughs> Let's see. I don't know where to start back. Um, so we have eight patient beds. The hospital was eventually bought out by Sanford Medical Center. And now okay. the primary physician in of the hospital is Dr. Andy Copperud. And he owns the vineyard outside of town where I had my wedding. Oh, nice. Yeah. So, small town, even smaller. Yep. Just like Martinsburg, we've got a physician in a vineyard. That's all we need. <laughs> really, though. As long as you have a vineyard, you are golden. That's what I'm saying. So late on the night of May 27th, 1962, a young girl came running frantically covered in blood into a farmhouse about four miles north of Martinsburg. It was 15-year-old oh. Patsy Lou Macbeth. Macbeth, remember, I told you to remember that. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, she had been shot in the shoulder before narrowly escaping the mass murder that would occur in her home just a few miles away. After calling her uncle, Furman Macbeth, for help, she was hospitalized. After relaying the information to her uncle and eventually police, authorities went to the Macbeth home where they found the bodies of Patsy's entire family. Oh, my gosh. Yes. 19-year-old Amos was found first, just outside the home in a ditch, with a gunshot wound to both the head and torso. Mm. His twin sister, Anna, was found next in the living room with a gunshot wound to the back. 17-year-old Donna was found dead with a gunshot wound to the head and chest, lying on the floor near a bassinet where her infant son, Perry, was laying... Uh. Gosh. He was unharmed. Okay, thank yes. goodness. He, what Perry was unharmed. Uh, the kids' parents, Andrew and Dora, were found last in the garage with gunshot wounds as well. So first inkling when you hear this case, when you see this in front of you, is a family massacre is typically a family annihilation, right? Yes, um, Usually the father, but a parent has a mental break and murders his family for one reason or another. Mm -hmm. uh, by absolutely every account I could find, Andy was a doting father. Um, he was born in 1910, second oldest of nine children, born and raised in rural Iowa, this, this area, um, within a five-mile radius of the home he was now raising his own children in. Oh, wow. He served in the military and married Dora May in 1942. And I think Dora May is the cutest little name. Isn't yeah. that sweet? <laughs> I was going to say something, but I was like, I feel like every single time that we've had a woman with a beautiful name, I've commented <laughs> saying that you need to name your daughter that, or I want to have a daughter so I can name her that. I think it's just the cutest thing, Dora May. Yes. Um, Dora was 10 years younger than Andy, but it didn't matter to them. Dora was also from rural Iowa, although she did live a short time in, in Colorado. She was from Sigourney, Iowa, which is only about 13 miles directly north of Martinsburg. Together, the couple welcomed their twins, Amos Rex and Anna Catherine. Oh. 
And they, they had them the same year they were married in 1942. Mm-hmm. And just a few years later, they had Donna Jean in 1945 and then Patsy Lou in 1946. Ugh, all those names are so <laughs> I know. Sweet. It just reminds me of home. Yes. I couldn't find a whole lot of information on what Andy did for, more, for work, but I think he farmed. Um, the reason I think this is because a couple of different sources mentioned farm work, farm hands, work outside, stuff like that, and they lived on a farm. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to farm if you live on a farm. I grew up on a farm and we didn't farm, so I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> that doesn't totally say, but I think that's probably what he did um, in this time. There wasn't a whole lot going on in Martinsburg anyway. So yeah, we have the two businesses and that's it. Yes. Um, What matters is the family was not struggling. So typically with family annihilators, it's either financially motivated or he wants out. Um, Mm -hmm. There's, there's typically not a whole lot of other motive behind family annihilation. Um, Sometimes there's something different, but usually those are the two primaries. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't live lavishly. Most people in r- the rural Midwest don't though. Um, they work hard for what they have. They mm-hmm. want for nothing, but the extra stuff is unnecessary. And that's exactly how the Macbeths were. They had everything they needed. They w- were not behind on bills. They were doing fine. They had a TV, they had a phone, you know, um, they were just a pretty average Midwestern family. There is a quality I've seen with a lot of Midwestern families, mine included, um, possibly yours, if you, with your own blended family, um, Midwestern families don't know strangers. Yeah, no. You we know? didn't lock our doors until no. we moved to Springfield. Y- yeah, you don't lock your doors. Your cars stay open. If your neighbor needs a ride in, you take them in. Mm-hmm. Um, if Always you leaving. have, yep. If you have family that needs you, it doesn't matter your circumstance. They're brought in. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're unwelcome, you've likely been given multiple chances in the past and screwed it up for yourself. So mm-hmm. <laughs> otherwise you're just, you're just there. And like I said, the Macbeths were no different. Um, Andy and Dora, in addition to their own four kids, their second daughter, Donna had been married for just a real short time, recently divorced at the time of this case. And she and her newborn baby, Perry, moved back in to live with her parents so Dora could help with Perry while Donna took some time to figure things out. So took her right back in just as any, any family would. Um, And then just a few months earlier before then around September of 1961, they also brought in Dora's nephew from her side, her sister's son, when he was in need of a job, he had fallen on tough times, needed a roof over his head. So they brought him in Mm -hmm. Andy was, by all accounts, happy to have another set of hands on the farm. Dora was quick to take in her nephew, even though he had kind of had a falling out with her sister's her sister's family. But um, her nephew, Gano is his name, needed help. So back to May 1962, Patsy Lou survived her injuries and was able to recount the events of that night. Um, and that's where a lot of this information comes from. She said during the day, the whole family had traveled about 20 miles away to the much larger city of Ottumwa, Iowa, to do some shopping. Um, They just bought some odds and ends, not shopping for anything particular. Gano bought Donna's new baby, some little baby shoes, just Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Just kind of a fun day out as a family. When they returned from Ottumwa, she, her sisters, and her mom tended to the house and the baby while her dad did some work outside. 
her brother Amos and Gaynell found themselves some worms and went fishing. Just a good day. A really good day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that evening around 8 p.m., the older kids all had made plans to go to a dance in Brighton, um, which was only about a half hour directly east of Martinsburg on, on the exact same road. So it's literally a straight shot. Yes. Um, Gaino, being the oldest of the group, drove, and the four of them were having a great time. They were line dancing. They were just hanging out, having a fun night. Having a ball. <laughs> I say the four of them, not including Patsy, because in some of my research, it did not... Um... <coughs> Excuse me. In some of my research, it did not um, say she was with them. Um, and then some of it brings her back into the story. So it's just a little bit gray for a minute there. Mm -hmm. um, at around 10 p.m., Gano told the others that he had something to do near Brighton and was going to head out for a while, but he'd be back around midnight to pick them up and take them home. What Gano would not tell them was he was not planning to stay in Brighton at all. Instead, he drove the 30 minutes back to the family farm outside Martinsburg. When he arrived, he saw Andy and Dora, his own aunt and uncle, sitting in the living room watching TV together. He then pulled out his 22 caliber 410-gauge shotgun. Um, this gun is actually a combination weapon, meaning it's both a single-shot 22 caliber rifle and a 410-gauge shotgun in one. He shot Andy and Dora through the living room window and then proceeded to drag their bodies into the garage and clean up the crime scene. What the hell? Yeah. After this, he cut the phone lines, pulled the electrical fuses out of the box, and drove back to Brighton to pick up his cousins. Like, like nothing ever, like nothing ever happened. Mm -hmm. He, and that's why he cleaned up the crime scene. Yep. Okay. On the way home, they stopped at a truck stop for some food, and then continued on their way. When they arrived at the farm around midnight, um, shortly after midnight, the three Macbeth kids immediately knew something was off. Um, the house was completely dark. And in the past, when they went out on nights like this, their parents would usually wait up for them or at the very least leave a light on for when they came in. Mm -hmm. And the house was completely dark and it was extremely uncharacteristic. So much to the point where Amos was actually frightened. He's like, something is wrong. Um, so worried about their parents and Donna's infant son, who they left with their parents, Anna and Donna immediately ran into the house to look for candles, flashlights, whatever they could to see what was going on. And while they did that, Amos took a look around outside to make sure it was safe. You know, his sisters are, he's trying to protect his family yeah. at that point. He's the oldest, the oldest boy and the only boy now because he's, his dad's not there mm -hmm. and he's got to make sure that they're not, he's not putting them in danger. Mm. While he was scoping out the house, he found his parents lying dead in the garage, right where Gano had left them. Ugh. Still not knowing that Gano had anything to do with their deaths, Amos ran inside to get him to get him to help him with his parents and have his sisters call the police. That's when they realized the phone lines had been cut and they had no way to call for help. Oh Gano gosh. then started literally hunting his cousins in their own home in the pitch black. Oh my god, that's terrifying. Yes, it's a horror movie. I, I'm, oh my gosh. Just as Patsy's story to the authorities had relayed, Anna was shot first in the back while she was trying to run away from Gano. She died right away. At this point, Amos had attempted to stop Gano, but 
Gano shot him in the face. Oh, my gosh. Um, He didn't die right away and was actually able to stumble out of the house and run a short distance before Gano caught up with him. Patsy later recalled hearing her only brother plead for his life before she heard another gunshot. Donna was shot next as she tried to frantically run to her infant son. Uh, When she did not die immediately from the first shot to her chest, Gano shot her again in the head. Oh, my gosh. Patsy ran at that point and Gano clipped her in the shoulder, but... He didn't kill her because he actually had to reload his gun um, and he fumbled with the ammo. And that's the only reason that she was able to escape. So once I know once she was outside, Patsy knew she needed help. So she ran through ditches the whole time with Gano chasing her. The whole time? Yes. She finally managed to escape him by crouching down and hiding and then taking off a different direction when he would pass her. And she said um, to authorities that she remembered it feeling like a game of cat and mouse. That's exactly what it is. Yes. The whole scene we can envision being absolutely horrifying, of course, but it almost felt calculated on Gano's part the way I've described it. But I want you to understand what it was actually like. Like, Making it even more terrifying for these kids, Patsy's story, and then the evidence that the police, um, the investigation would find, showed that it was not calculated at all. It was not organized. Gano was completely frantic the entire time. The house was total darkness. It was a raging thunderstorm outside. Like So oh the gosh. only light that was coming was from Gano's flashlight flying around as he tried to find his cousins in their house, flashes of lightning. And Patsy said that he littered the house and the gunshot, the bullet holes would show that too in the investigation. He was shooting at every shadow, every noise he heard, every everywhere, just, just blowing really up the nearly. house, literally. Wow. Yes. So, having just murdered his entire extended family, Gano hid, of course. Um, Even with 124 police officers searching for him around the clock, he was able to stay hiding for four days um, before they did finally find him, about an hour away from Martinsburg, hiding in a barn near Lake Wapello. Wait, did you say 124 police officers? Searched for him for around the clock for four days. How many people were in the town at that point? 300? Uh, no. At the time of this case, there was 110. So there are more police officers than there are people in the area. All the, the whole area came together searching for him. Okay. It was not just Martinsburg. It was at all of the surrounding towns. Wow. Yes. Okay. They all banded together, the police officers, to find him. Wow. Um, after they arrested him, he confessed to murdering the Macbeth family and also began revealing a little bit more about who he actually was. Gano was originally from Colorado. This is where Dora's sister was living, and Gano too, for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, I couldn't figure out exactly what he had done, but he got into some sort of trouble in Colorado and fell out with his immediate family. His mom um, didn't want him to stay there anymore, and which led to him moving in with his stepmother, Juanita, who lived near Martinsburg in Hendrick. Gano moved out to the farm with the Macbeths around September of 1961, which just so happened to be right around the same time Juanita went missing from her home. 
Oh. Mm-hmm. Really? After his arrest for the Macbeth murders, Gano confessed to murdering his stepmother as well. Police found her body in a shallow grave beneath a bedroom window of her home. It was very badly decomposed at that time. I mean, she had been buried for eight months since her death. Um, but they were able to identify her by a tattoo of Cupid she had on her shoulder and eventually were able to confirm fingerprints, hair, DNA, all they, they knew it was her. Oh my gosh. Her cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. Her skull had been almost completely crushed on one side. The blow was intense. Um, in oh addition to the head wound, Juanita's throat had been cut pretty badly, but not... Not deep enough to where it hit any vital arteries or anything. So they were able to rule that it was the skull trauma that mm-hmm. was her cause of death. Um, it's believed that Gano killed her and drug her out the bedroom window into the already dug grave below. He yeah. was digging her grave while she was still alive? Yes. Oh, my um, gosh. When they found her body, there was a rope tied around her waist. Um, what po- what appeared to be possible paint flakes in her hair presumed to be from dragging her body out the window and then the whole body was covered in lime oh yeah um gaina would then reach out to his aunt dora and ask for them to take him in as he'd fallen on hard times so just murdered his stepmom called up aunt aunt dora and uncle andy and being the good people they are they take him in what a piece of shit yes the primary theory in what led to the Macbeth murders is they think that Dora and Andy had probably begun asking questions about Juanita. Um, I mean, she was from the area. So a town of 110, word spreads, whether yeah. it's your town or the neighboring town. If, if a woman's been missing for eight years and you have some sort of connection or eight years, excuse me, eight, eight months, months. Um, and you have some sort of connection to her, you're going to pay attention to it. So mm-hmm. They likely think Gano felt like it was closing in on him. They were getting too close. Yeah. Um, he was convicted of five counts of first-degree murder, serving five consecutive life terms for the Macbeths, as well as one count of second-degree murder, adding an additional 50 years onto that for the murder of Juanita. Good. Yep. He died in prison in 2005 at the age of 67. Oh, darn. Yeah. I'm so um, sad to hear that. <laughs> not. I did read one thing, um, one article that I was reading actually interviewed Perry, the baby who survived. Um, and obviously he was very little when it happened, but he went on to say like it affected him his whole life. Um, he was very troubled in school. He didn't have many friends. He bullied. He was, he was bullied. He bullied others, just very angry. Um, and rightfully so. I mean, your entire family is killed and, by your own family member. Yeah. So, yeah. Terrible, terrible story of the Macbeths in Martinsburg, Iowa. But, gosh. At least Gano's dead now. Yes. <laughs> Man. What what a piece of he- trash. I know. I know. I mean, we have this uh, every episode, but. We do. We do. I I know. Gosh, what, what were we thinking with true crime? All we do is talk about pieces of garbage. Human oh, garbage. <laughs> I mean, that's basically my life. Nick got frustrated <laughs> at me because I was doing too much around the house. And he's like, you need to relax. You need to, you know, calm down. Sit this down. time is for you and our, uh, your son. 
<laughs> and uh, so I've been watching a lot of Criminal Minds reruns in 2020 and just That's all nothing that wrong with that. Not at all. Well, I have something recent I wanted to put out here for our missing person. Um, I actually came across it on the Crime Junkie discussion Facebook page. Okay. Um, I don't are you I don't know, are you a part of that one? I'm not page? actually. Yeah, so the page is called um oh shoot. I just had it up for us. Um Crime Junkie Podcast Discussion Group. So it's not run by um the Ash and Britt, um mm-hmm. the um what are we called? Hosts, <laughs> the hosts of Crime Junkie. Um, but it's a it's a pretty good group. A lot of people post recent stuff in it, so that's where I came across this one actually just earlier this week. Um, Megan Farnworth is her name, and she actually went missing from Des Moines, Iowa, on Monday, the seventeenth of oh. this year, twenty twenty two. So very very recent. Um, and the reason why I wanted to cover her is because there's not a whole lot of, I don't even know if it's a, um, a processed missing person, like through the police force. Um, this was posted by her sister, Cassidy, and, um, it's, I'm going to read the post first and then I'll tell you a little bit more about her. So it says, hi everyone. I can't believe I'm making this post, but my sister, Megan Farnsworth is missing. She was last seen about 8.45 a.m. this morning, that was January 17th, near the Urbandale neighborhood in between Meredith Douglas and Merle Hay, um, headed south towards the mall. Those are roads in that area. Mm-hmm. No one in my family has heard from her and have no idea where she's she was going. She does not have her phone or car. She may be with someone who is very dangerous, and that person's name is Dale Wisdom. No way of getting a hold of either of them. If you see either of them, please contact me or my family immediately. We would like to bring Megan home as soon as possible and are highly concerned for her safety at this moment. Please feel free to share. Thank you so much. So I know we try we try to have a little bit more in time in between with missing persons just because once you're a certain age, you have the right to disappear if you mm-hmm. want to disappear. Um, and there are some instances where it doesn't necessarily help if there's if it's broadcasted everywhere. Yeah. Um, however, the person she's with, this Deo Eric Wisdom is his name, is he, he's been in and out of jail multiple times uh, for multiple reasons. So that he's a Caucasian male, shaggy hair in his last booking picture. Um, but there are some pictures with him with a little bit more cropped hair. Some have facial hair, some do not. But he's 24, 5'9". Uh, Megan seems to be about 5'5", five, five, maybe 5'6", five, and she has curly either blonde or strawberry blonde hair. She's just cute. She's just adorable. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Cassidy, the sister, posted an update on um, yesterday at 1040 a.m. It says, we believe Megan and Ordeo may have her car now, possibly on the south side of Des Moines driving a gray Dodge Dart with license plate EFB-119. If she reaches out for money, please do not give it to her. Neither of them are working, and she has, and he takes any money she has. This man has been on control of her communication, often sending messages from her account. We still do not 
still have not heard anything from her. She does not have a phone and still believe she's in a dangerous situation. Please keep sharing. Thanks again for all your support and shares. It means a lot to me and my family. So this sounds like textbook, narcissistic, controlling mm -hmm. behavior on his part. Um, and with it being so recent, I think um, we have a really good shot at getting the word out there. And hopefully, even if Megan went willingly, maybe it helps her realize like, hey, this is not a great situation for you to be in um, and reach out to the right people for help. So mm -hmm. that's what I have for Iowa yeah. this week, everybody. <laughs> Iowa see. gave us ups and downs, man. It, it gave me a lot of downs, to be I honest. Keep, I keep saying I got to say it one more time. I tried really hard. I really cannot stand the state. Of Iowa. <laughs> I... I've I said it last episode too. I love the people there. <laughs> I love them and I, I will keep on loving them, but I freaking hate Iowa. It's yeah. so boring. <laughs> yeah, not much there. I mean, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> but you know what the next state that we're going to has? What? It has the Kansas City Chiefs. No, it doesn't. It does not have the Kansas City Chiefs. That's what I meant to say. So that's, I meant to say that the next state that we're going to does not have the Kansas City Chiefs, even though they're named Kansas City Chiefs, because there is literally a Kansas City, Missouri. So the next state does not have the Kansas City Chiefs. Yeah. PSA from Gates. Yes. PSA. <laughs> But it does have Gates Barbecue, which I've never had, but I've heard it's really good. Well, maybe your parents lied to you and you're actually named after it. Ugh. Did I tell you who I was named after? Yeah, but I don't remember. I know that her name was Gates. <laughs> <laughs> yes, her name is Gates McFadden. She played McFadden, Dr. Beverly right. Crusher on Star Trek Next Gen. Oh. So, yeah. We're, we're Star Wars people in our house. I'm a Stargate person. So, I don't even know what Stargate is. What's oh Stargate? Gosh. Stargate is amazing. There's like the Stargate that you go through to get to other planets and other times. And uh, my favorite out of all the Stargates is Stargate Atlantis because Jason Momoa is in it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> He's so good. It's just a, a phenomenal cast. And right. even though it was like from the 80s, 90s, it's really good. Like that's my that's one of my comfort shows, for okay. sure. I'm 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 here for it. Yeah. All right, everybody. If you want to find us, you can support us on Patreon. We're gonna have big things coming in 2022 on Patreon. So make sure you go get signed up now so yes. you can get our awesome new stuff. New I can't merch. tell you all of it because we haven't even decided on what all it's gonna be. Yes. So find us on patreon we are at um just killer country not at killer country you don't need that sign on patreon you can find us on facebook at facebook.com backslash killer country podcast on instagram um you can find case pictures on both facebook and instagram and we are at killer country podcast and you can feel free to email us about literally everything under the sun stargate at you can you can email me and we can have a very lengthy in-depth conversation about Stargate, guys. I am a domestic engineer now. I am a stay-at-home mom. Please feel free to email me about anything. She's got the time to talk about Stargate. 
I have the time to talk about anything. We can talk about dogs. I have two Doberman house projects. I'm not allowed to do them by myself right now, but still we can talk about um, cases that you want us to cover. And the next state is Kansas. We can talk about cases, uh, not cases that you want to cover. If you have any information on any of these missing peoples that we have covered or any of the missing persons that we have covered in any of our episodes, you can email us at this Gmail. Um, any questions, anything that you want to talk about, it's at killercountrypodcast at gmail.com. And you can send us campfire stories. We want to hear all of your true crime stuff. Yes, we do. And especially about Kansas, because that is where we're headed next. Yes. <laughs> and then we won't be in Kansas anymore. We won't be in Kansas anymore, Toto. <laughs> That's the name of the dog, right, Toto? Yeah. Okay. All right, everybody. We'll see you in Kansas. Bye.